Welcome to Reliability Matters, a podcast for the electronic assembly industry. Each episode covers topics related to reliability, best practices, and environmentally responsible assembly techniques with insights from experts across the electronic assembly industry. Now, here's your host, Mike Conrad. Welcome back to another episode of the Reliability Matters podcast. I'm so glad you're with me today. For those of you who are counting, this is episode number 125. As all of you are well aware, this show is all about reliability, specifically reliability of circuit assemblies. One challenge that seems to be persistent within our space is design for manufacturing, or DFM. If you're a contract manufacturer, I have no doubt that you've had the experience of being asked to build a product that seems unbuildable. One example that rings true in my world was the introduction of the bottom terminated component, or BTCs. DTCs are marvelous components because all of the lead terminations are below the part. They allow for highly dense component placement and highly miniaturized assemblies. They also present a number of unique challenges in reflow, in many cases voiding, cleaning, and inspection. Unlike other industries, we are not immune to the introduction of new technologies that may lack the implementation knowledge. We then spend the next several years at technical conferences and symposiums learning how to implement these new technologies. There are many acronyms in our industry that begin with DF, designed for testability, designed for mechanical assembly, serviceability, reliability, and so many more. So many, in fact, there's a placeholder acronym for all of the various design fours referred to as DFX. Perhaps the holy grail of DFX is DFM, Design for Manufacturability, as it encompasses so many aspects of assembly. To help us understand what exactly is DFM, I invited Andrew Williams to be my guest on this episode. Andrew Williams is the Engineering Manager for Electronics Manufacturing at Pride Industries. He has more than 30 years of experience in manufacturing and design and holds an SMTA Process Engineer Certification from SMTA, and he's also an IPC-certified Electronics Program Manager. Andrew is a guest lecturer at UC Davis and Cal State University Sacramento for Supply Chain Management, Operations, and TQM courses, and speaks frequently on DFM, DFS, and other DFX topics. And today, he's my guest on the Reliability Matters podcast. Well, hi, Andrew. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. Glad to be on. I'm glad you're here. Um, So let's kind of start at or let's establish a foundation. Um, you you work at Pride Industries. I've been to Pride Industries. I had the distinct um, uh, thrill of getting a tour through the plant, and uh, this was several years ago, and I think you've just gotten bigger since then. Um, tell me about Pride Industries and and how it is unique among, among other things, contract manufacturing. So one of the main things that separates us from most contract manufacturers is that we're actually a nonprofit organization. We're a social enterprise with a mission to create employment uh, and employment opportunities for people with disabilities or other barriers to employment. So our workforce on our production floor in electronics manufacturing, for example, is made up of a large group of people with documented disabilities that have been integrated directly into our workforce and our processes. And we strive uh, very heavily to ensure their success through our programs um, as a social enterprise and improving the community with what we do. Yeah, Um, that that really struck me when I was there. I don't think I, when I went up there, I don't think I realized that. And uh, or I don't re- recall knowing that ahead of time, and it was uh, it was such a joy to see um, so many people really enjoying what they do, um, having you know a sense of career purpose and and things like that. And it's uh, it's definitely unique, uh, particularly in the high tech world. And it, it may be less unique in, in other spaces, but in the high tech world, it's definitely unique. And it uh, kudos to Pride and its uh, team for choosing to start that type of organization. Um, Design for manufacturability, DFM, you are your company's expert in in that 
uh, subject line. Uh, how? Th tell me about the genesis of how you got interested in design for manufacturability. Uh, was that your goal in your early part of the career, or was it due to frustration that you couldn't build what people were asking you to build, <laughs> and and someone needed to step up and fix it? You know, give me a little bit of um, history there. It's a mixture of a lot of things. Uh, I guess as a core, as a process engineer or manufacturing engineer. Uh, to really get the best process available or capable for a product, um, you really need to kind of marry up the design with the manufacturing process. And unfortunately, uh, most PCBA designers uh, don't have the same level of manufacturing knowledge as they do design knowledge. And so some of those manufacturing characteristics kind of get left behind when they're doing a design for a, for a product, specifically PCBAs or also electromechanical or cable assemblies that can apply as well. Yeah. And so I guess you could say in some manners we were forced into it because to really get the best process flow, you need to work with designers to improve some of those challenges that mitigating them in process is maybe possible, but really leaves challenges for the long term. Sure. Going back to something you mentioned earlier, I, m I meant to say this before I asked you that last question. Um, Pride is a purposely a non-for-profit, not-for-profit organization. It's just kind of ironic because uh, there's a lot of contract manufacturers out there that are non-profit, but that's not their intention. <laughs> you know, the, right. the profit <laughs> margins in this industry are, can, be, um, can be rather thin. Uh, it's, it's a tough industry that we are in because every year, our customers and consumers expect the products we buy, the electronics products we buy, to be half the price, last twice as long, half the size, right. almost year over year over year over year. You know, it, it really pushes you know the, the the boundaries of how how much more cost can we get out of this stuff, and and um, so it's it's a it's definitely for many, not for all. There are segments in our space that that have plenty of profit margins. I'm, I, I'm probably thinking of aerospace and you know, um, uh, military right. and, and stuff like that. But uh, consumer electronics in particular, very fine margins there. Okay, let's kind of start at, at the beginning. Let's define a few terms. Almost everyone in my audience are in the electronic manufacturing space, but not all. And even some of those, maybe some, some newer people to this industry, may not have heard the term DFM before. And others that have been in this industry for a long time and perhaps might be a little bit jaded, may not believe in DFM. Uh, so, right. you know, that, that it actually exists. Uh, so let's define the term. What is uh, designed for manufacturability? What's the, what's the goal in that? No, that, that, that's good because there is kind of a, a lack of a gray area for people who know or don't know it. It's, it's either you, you know what DFM is and you use it routinely, or you may have never heard of it or is not quite implemented. So in its basic form, uh, design for manufacturability is designing with the manufacturing process in mind, not just the product's purpose. So you're, tr you're taking in that manufacturing capabilities, process, equipment, materials, etc., cetera, uh, in mind as you're designing a product. Uh, from an advanced perspective, it's designing a product to take advantage of the most efficient manufacturing processes or equipment or techniques while meeting the product's purpose. So that's being much more in tune with what equipment's available and designing your product to get the most out of your product because you're leveraging maybe the state-of-the-art equipment or something, some features that are very new that you can uh, you know that your design is capable because there's equipment available to produce it. Right. And what are some of the, I'll divide it into two categories, the poster child reasons for DFM, the kind of like Captain Obvious reasons, right. and what are some of the other maybe less appreciated, less understood, um, more subtle benefits of DFM? So pretty much the obvious is eliminating process challenges that can be created from a poor design. Uh, so that means a product can be ran through a very efficient manufacturing process. So of course that's gonna result in a higher level of quality and consistency of that process. 
um, that can feed in or correlate with uh, total la uh, manufacturing costs that are lower. Uh, and sometimes it can actually reduce the build duration, uh, which starts bringing up the topic of on-time delivery. Uh, some of the lower level or maybe not well-known benefits may be things uh, that we're starting to hear about now, which is uh, part availability, uh, eliminating some risks that may uh, may come up in the future because using a very custom component as opposed to something with a common footprint, uh, depending on which path you choose, could develop a DFM issue in the future depending on part availability. So that's those kind of benefits are a little bit less known. Uh, but like, as you said, usually the uh, the red flags that are obvious, those are the ones that most people are aware of when, uh, you know, viewing it from a DFM perspective. Yeah, it's interesting. Supply chain is not something in normal times that we think yeah. or worry much about. <laughs> in current times, it's certainly the kind of the top of the concern pyramid there. Uh, and exactly. I'm sure today there's probably a few more people that wish that if they had a DFM program that it had incorporated, um, you know, the possibility of of, uh, of, design, of of supply chain issues and things like that. Uh, I'm a big fan. When when I designed our equipment, starting 32 years ago, um, and I, I don't do that so much anymore. They kind of don't let me do that anymore. But but um, you know I you know I, I basically said I can build anything from parts I can find at Home Depot. That was. You know, in the early days of my company, we were a bootstrap company, and and you know we were building specific assembly products for our, our industry, and I was a big believer in, you know, sourcing parts that are readily available, and particularly parts that were not specifically designed for our application use, and you know more consumer use, and right. and that allowed us to swap parts that allowed us to change. You know, from brand A to brand B, without any negative reliability effect. Um, you know, we we don't really do that anymore. We can't. Our our products have gotten you know far more sophisticated and more customized and right. things like that. But but uh, that was my goal to you know if I can if I can buy it in, out of the Granger catalog or or the local hardware store, we'll go there first, right? And so maybe although I didn't even know the acronym DFM back then, maybe there was a little bit of. DFM and me. Um, who's responsible for DFM, at, at, typically at a company? So typically uh, at its base level, the PCBA designer is responsible for DFM characteristics by means of re uh, like ma maintaining a robust design role checklist in their uh, CAD software that they're using. Um, obviously, that's going to be a, a smaller uh, base of DFM solutions, uh, because that that's not the main purpose of design rule checks in uh, CAD software. Uh, so in most cases, the largest amount of the expertise is going to be found with the manufacturing engineers that are directly involved with launching those products uh, onto a manufacturing floor or with an EMS provider, depending on the type of relationship. Uh, so it, it, that's, I guess, something to say also is DFM doesn't only apply to uh, people that are outsourcing their designs. It applies to anybody designing a product that's getting moved to a manufacturing floor. Um, so, in, But in our case, as an EMS, um, our customers are doing the designs. And so they normally will look to us for that DFM uh, input and feedback um, uh, because their designers are very well skilled for bringing a product to life from a concept, but being able to build it, um, that may, they may create some challenges. The best design may, may not always be the best manufacturable product. Sure. I would imagine everyone has their own uh, silo that they're responsible for. You know, <laughs> yes. the, the board design people have to create a board that maybe has to fit a certain form factor that has to, you know, perform certain types of, 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 um, of, of, tasks and the assembly people you know they don't care much about that they care more about can we assemble this stuff and the, right. the people who uh, source parts have other concerns over you know how much of this is extremely custom how much of this is, is with a sole you know sole source vendor uh, things like that so I would imagine that 
best practices of DFM incorporates almost like a task force of design engineers, manufacturing engineers, um, yes. you know, people from the assembly floor, people from the, the, um, the purchasing departments, things, and even in some cases, customer input. I would imagine a, a coalition of input probably helps in a DFM process. Is that, is that your experience? Definitely. It's definitely a collaborative effort um, because some of the products design may solely exist because that's what the end consumer or end user wants to see in that product. Um, so being able to manufacture something with uh, that characteristic in mind uh, may not be the easiest thing to do. And, and so then you have to figure out how to wrap all of that together so that it's a it's a solid design. It meets the end user's needs or requirements, and then it's also manufacturable. So sometimes there's a, uh, without that collaborative effort, uh, it's definitively going to be a challenge. But if you tie all those groups together, uh, you can actually solve a lot of problems with a product design and still meet the end goal. Yeah. I, I would think that, uh, I'm going to ask you about the challenges of, of DFM. And I, I think, I would think that there are two groups that produce different challenges. One is if you're an OEM, you have right. you know, kind of an in-house challenge. You know, maybe you have to get buy-in from various groups within your organization. And I would think in your world, as a contract manufacturer, the challenges are multiplied because sometimes you're just given a statement of work and a bill of materials and, and you're told, build this. And right. it may not be buildable or readily buildable. And that might result in... Um, either failures in the field, unintended failures in the field, or it might result in higher prices per assembly uh -huh. than would otherwise be. Um, so what are the challenges, both from an OEM perspective as you see it and, and as you experience uh, probably on a daily basis as a contract manufacturer in implementing a, a DFM? So some of them are, are, are the same in both instances. Um, some of those challenges come into play uh, where you have different philosophies uh, between the design engineering groups and manufacturing engineering groups, uh, where a board is heavily designed to maybe fit performance or functional needs, um, but completely violates anything related to DFM because the the priority goal from a design perspective is meeting that performance requirement or something. Um, a simple example is when you have like a, a connector that has to be in a certain place on the board that is in a location that you have to hand solder, you can't wave solder it. Um, so that's kind of a simple thing where you, you have a performance or an end item, but getting that resolved in process, um, you know, can be a challenge. Uh, from a EMS perspective, it, it, a lot of that's the same, but now you're dealing with usually a couple other entities in between the manufacturing group and the and the design engineering group. Uh, so in like our case, um, we may have to funnel through a program management team that at our customer site, maybe they only allow interfacing through a sourcing team. Uh, and then so we have to pass it through them and then get them into engineering. Um, so until we can establish that engineering to engineering relationship, uh, it can be a challenge. Right. Uh, another big challenge or common challenge I would say is having DFM uh, topic too late in the design process, uh, which can prevent changes from being implemented that would have actually been fairly easy at the beginning. Um, but because it's too late in the process, uh, the effort now to make those changes could create delays in like launching a product. Um, a, an example, um, we, one that we've experienced is uh, there were some traces that were very, very close to a board edge, and there was a lot of concern that those traces could get damaged through processing. Um, unfortunately, being able to move those traces required moving numerous other traces to make room, and so um, they the, the customer didn't want to enact those right away uh, because they, that would delay the launch of that product by a couple months while the designer made all those changes and validated them. So having that earlier uh, discussion about DFM uh, is very crucial. Yeah, I would, I would assume that if you bring up the after a product's already designed, um, 
DFM is probably a tougher tougher sell, unless yeah. <laughs> unless they are having major issues, you know, reliability issues in the field. In which case, they may have to look at it. it if a product is already designed, is it too late for DFM? If there's enough motivation from the customer, can something it, can you implement a DFM process kind of in in retrospect, can, can you um, make some, maybe some smaller changes that would that would not severely affect the timeline that could make some major improvements in how things are manufactured? You definitely can. So um, you do have to look at DFM as a living concept, that it's not something that's done once and then it, it can't be touched ever again. Uh, for things like fab level changes, there, it may be more difficult, right. uh, but you have a lot of other items that you can uh, touch during a product's life cycle. Uh, certain components on the bill of materials uh, that can be changed fairly easy um, because maybe they're using a standard footprint, but now a part's not available. Maybe you have to make some modifications like uh, stencil optimization so you can place a slightly different sized component, but leave the pads alone on the board because you made some changes to the stencil so you can kind of compensate that. Um, so there's things like that that you can still do um, changes with during the life cycle. Uh, one of the most common ones is panelization changes. Uh, so if you have a, a panel layout uh, of a fab that's not quite the best that it can be, um, those are a little easier to change uh, in midstream as long as uh, you know, you didn't do massive uh, one-time buys with fab quantities, uh, you know, and depending on the volume. Um, so panelization changes are probably one of the most common ways to make improvements uh, with mature products um, because it helps us dial in a process where you, to, to, to make that next level of improvement, you have had to build maybe a couple thousand before you know, hey, uh, we've gotten everything dialed in, we've built 5,000, but if we make this one panel change, it'll shave a little bit more off this production cycle time or whatever. Um, and so in those cases, that's looking at DFM over the lifespan of a product. Um, you can continually optimize what you're doing in a process perspective. Sure. I, scale means everything. Uh, the, the greater sample size we have, like any statistic, the exactly. greater sample size we have, the more we can see trends. And, you know, in my world, I, I live in the cleaning world and contamination removal world. And, uh, one example of kind of retroactive DFM would be to change the mask protocol on, on a board yeah. around bottom terminated components. You know, the, the concept of window painting or, or building a, a kind of a mask gutter around certain um, bottom terminated component parts allows more easily um, the activators in the flux to, to outgas. They have a place to right. go and that can reduce voiding and other types of things. And that wasn't really discovered until well after, you know, these boards are being manufactured and in the industry, once it was at scale, started realizing that they're having a lot of, you know, quality issues in this case, uh, voiding. Right. Uh, and, and the application of a solution, which is really within the DFM category, uh, was, mm -hmm. was rather easy to make and, and benign to the rest of the, of the product, right? <laughs> it, it was, it was totally an inert thing for, Yet it made such a tremendous difference to a lot of a lot of uh, assemblers. When, in your world, when you when you're given in your world meaning contract manufacturing, when you're given a a product and say, okay, build this, um, and you have some design ideas, DFM <laughs> sort of ideas that could make the the product easier to build, make your life a little easier, and and probably the customer's product a little better. Um, how do you go about, quote unquote, selling that idea to, to the customer? I, I would imagine one way is through a process I like to call guided discovery, which is right. um, you know, giving a set of facts and the customer comes to their own conclusion, which happens to be your conclusion. And that can be done by saying, okay, it's going to be $100 a board if we do it my way or $1,000 a board if we do it your way. And suddenly right. your way <laughs> has a lot of weight to it. But outside of that, how do you go about getting buy-in, particularly from customers that just say, you're, it's, your, it's your problem, you deal with it. Right. So that, it definitely varies customer to customer. Um, uh, so we have some customers that are resistant to DFM changes unless it creates significant cost savings. 
Um, they they want to call their design done and just have it built. Um, so that's a little little bit more of a challenge. Um, so it really depends on how they view the benefits of DFM uh, and as, as well as how open they are to that input uh, in their design process or product lifecycle process. Um, so we have some customers that welcome DFM in all uh, steps of the process and and involve us as early as, as possible. Uh, and so in those cases, um, we really try to leverage um, you know, the benefits, like I mentioned earlier, and it could be cost savings, could be higher quality. Um, and in some cases, we've had to uh, make some uh, changes that were under our control um, that did not require customer approval, um, but maybe had some expense like wave solder fixturing or whatever. Um, there's been cases where we have put the expense forward ourselves to kind of prove the point. Um, and then, uh, once we're able to pass that cost savings on to them, um, kind of say, Hey, here's how we accomplish that cost savings. So if you were to, um, you know, purchase wave fixtures through NRE process earlier on, um, we can give you those cost savings earlier in your product life cycle. And we actually did exactly that with one of our customers, um, that was very hesitant to want to, uh, pay for wave solder fixtures. Uh, until we showed some very large cost savings um, by uh, creating a much cleaner process. Mm. Uh, I, I'm reminded of a guest I had on this show um, oh, probably about a year or so ago, uh, Chris Denny. He's, he's from another con uh, small um, family-owned um, contract manufacturer, and, and they had a customer that really wanted their board built with uh, black um, masking, right, because uh -huh. they thought it looked cool. And, and they're like, sure, of course, you know, we don't care, you know? And, and so they, the CM in this case had to source the board as typically CMs will, will be given that task. And they had just tons of rework. They were, I think it was a bridging issue. There were just all sorts of solderability issues on that particular board and they fought it. And they were reworking and reworking and reworking. And of course, reworking A costs money and B, anytime you rework yeah. something, you, you introduce another potential liability. Um, and and finally, out of sheer frustration, they contacted the customer and they said, you know, we just can't do this anymore. Can we just use green solder mask or clear solder mask and, and not do the black? And the customer says, yeah, I don't care. <laughs> they thought that that was an absolute <laughs> like technical requirement. And um, once they switched to a traditional solder mask, the world was wonderful, right? And, and that yeah. is kind of a, another example of, of um, uh, going back and, and, you know, after a product is, is completely designed and, and changing it from a DFM perspective. What are exactly. some, some of the common misconceptions with DFM? What do people get wrong in the concept of DFM? I, I would probably say one of the most common things is that every DFM um, topic or parameter uh, is going to instantly create a, a difference or a cost savings for the product. Um, in some cases, uh, making a change for a DFM purpose uh, or reason um, simply elevates the level of quality. Um, so in some case, you know, in the process. And so in, in some cases, as a contract manufacturer, not all of the cost of poor quality that ha occurs within a process is, you know, charged back to the customer. It's on us as the EMS to ensure that our processes are operating at a certain level. Um, you know, we don't, if we're not operating the best, we can't charge our customers for that. Um, that's our uh, responsibility internally. And so um, some of the DFM uh, input that we provide is simply to enable a, a stronger process that eliminates, um, you know, random rework because of, uh, you know, instead of getting, uh, you know, 99.9% uh, you know, product out of SMT, we're seeing 98%. And so, yes, that's a small amount, but if it's just a simple change that's need to be made, that needs to be made on the design or with the bill of materials, um, that's, you know, that's almost a 2% change in quality that, you know, doesn't require anything other than a simple design change that occurs once. And so those, um, those principles that may not directly impact cost, but gives the customer a, a higher quality product, which, uh, like you just said, it, it reduces liability from a warranty RMA perspective for both parties. Mm -hmm. um, usually those are some of the things that kind of get missed 
um, uh, or that there's an assumption that, hey, if I make this change for you, I'm going to instantly see a dollar amount change on my, that's going to benefit me as a customer. Um, it's not always the case. In some cases, it's you're going to see an improved customer satisfaction over the next five years as opposed to a direct cost improvement today. Yeah, that brings up the old saying. I've said it several times on the show. We don't have time to do it right, but we'll find the time to do it over. Right? Yes. <laughs> and doing it over is, is a lot more expensive than doing it right in, in, the, in the big scheme of things. Um, yeah. DFM seems to be, particularly from a contract manufacturing standpoint, from an EMS provider standpoint, seems to provide a, a pretty high degree of, of sellable win-win. Um, because mm -hmm. if things are easier to manufacture, that it's right. easier on you and your team and your profit margins can be improved and, right. and a, a well-designed part that is easy to manufacture um, will tend to fall into the reliability uh, you know, benefit for the customer. Yep. So, um, and, and the customer will experience fewer delays from the EMS provider. So it, it, it does seem to land on both sides. It seems to be an investment that, that is um, uh, benefited, that can benefit both the um, EMS provider, if that's the case, and their customer, the OEM itself. Right. Yeah, that, that's, that, that's a good sellable point. Um, how does, well, first of all, DFM, I would assume, in, in a best-case scenario, starts at the design process, right? Uh -huh. um, not, and, and when I say design process, I'm not just speaking of circuit board design or semiconductor design. Um, I'm thinking of when the product itself is born, when, the, when there's a genesis of a product. Hey, I got an idea. Uh, I, right. I would think that's where DFM should start. Um, is that typically where it starts, or is, is it normally a response to a problem? Uh, it's, it could be a mix depending on the type of design it is. Um, but normally it starts at the design, uh, because we do have, e even with our customers that are, uh, resistant to a lot of our DFM feedback, um, they're still utilizing DFM principles in their design. So you can see that it's still occurring. Um, even though, um, the, the pro process from our side or our input maybe hasn't occurred yet. You can see that they've actually taken some principles and applied them in their design process, um, which of course is always the best place to have it start. Um, and uh, the, fir the first step is always having the, the design group collaborating with manufacturing groups to ensure that um, it the DFM does get implemented in the design process. Um, and whether those are both in the same company as OEM or ODM EMS relationship, those two groups need to be working together. Um, and then of course, the, the, the next step, if you will, is being proactive about it. Um, so, you know, we encourage our customers to, to share their designs. Um, you know, when that, when their designer is at a point where they're kind of sitting back in their chair going, you know what, I think I can take a breath with this design now. Uh, it's about ready to get wrapped up and do some final tweaking of traces and position of components and that type of stuff. But in general, it's almost ready. That's usually the point where we say that's where the designer should wrap up their design files, shoot it over to us and say, can you please give me a quick DFM review on this and let me know if I'm on the right track with everything? Or is there a red flag that I need to move now before I call it done? And a few of our customers that actually do that, um, we have captured some items that would have greatly impacted the manufacturing cost of a product. Uh, in particular, one was a, a, the position and style of a connector that they chose to put on the bottom side just to make it easy, um, basically was going to create two or three extra manufacturing steps in the process to handle that. Um, and so we simply just said, if you just move that connector to the top side of the board where you have plenty of real estate, you eliminate this, 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 and so your cost is going to be significantly lower. Um, and, and the best thing about that is that that particular designer, uh, literally a couple weeks later, shot us three other designs that had been in their queue for a while. They just hadn't launched. And they said, hey, I've got the same connector on these boards. Did I do it right? Or 
what about these? Um, and so that that expansion, once you start that communication, uh, can be very beneficial. And again, it, it gets it into the design process. As an engineer specializing in DFM, what are some of the tools that you you use? So, so there's actually a lot of different software tools specifically designed to review uh, PCB data um, for DFM analysis um, and, and other types of things. Uh, in our case, uh, we have several software applications that are pretty much standard in the manufacturing industry. Um, in, internally, we do have Altium Designer. So even though we are not, uh, you know, we don't offer design services. Uh, one of my engineers, uh, it is prior life, if you will, was was a PCBA designer for a long number of years. So uh, he uses Altium Designer to import customers' data and run some design world checks and stuff that he's built. Uh, we use uh, some products from Graphicode, uh, GC Preview, and PowerPlace to analyze Gerber data and um, do a lot of color mixing with the layers to kind of see where uh, spacing might be an issue uh, and that type of thing. Uh, our MES software is uh, Aegis Factory Logics, so we can import files. Um, that's where we merge the CAD and Gerber with the bill of materials to create machine programs and uh, uh, our work instructions for the operators on the floor. So that has some tools in it that we can leverage. And then uh, Silicon Expert is a uh, cloud-based tool that we use to analyze uh, bills of materials to look at um, if parts are coming up end of life or obsolete if uh, how many alternates are available for a particular part. Obviously, if you look at an IC and there's 20 different alternates on the market, that's probably a good part to choose. Whereas if you look at one and there's one or two alternates on the market, you may want to revisit using that sure. particular part uh, or package size or whatever might be the limitation. Uh, and then, of course, in general, component data sheets and process material data sheets. Uh, if a customer requires us to use a particular RTV or solder or whatever, we'll use those material data sheets and application notes uh, to analyze um, the the process that that uh, product will have to go through. So we take all of that and then measure it up against our process capabilities and equipment. So in a lot of cases, um, a DFM review for us may not be the exact same as a DFM review for, say, a much larger contract manufacturer because they may have different equipment, maybe have state-of-the-art equipment that was, you know, purchased last week, et cetera. Um, and so while our equipment is very uh, up to speed and state-of-the-art, um, it wasn't purchased last week. Um, so there are some changes in features. And so we try to also document um, the items that are, uh, which are very rare, but there are uh, an item for us as a DFM perspective, but may not be a general DFM. Um, so that's good for the customer to know. And I think the opposite can be true too. You're, you said some uh, EMS providers might have more sophisticated equipment than yours. Others may have legacy equipment, you know, <laughs> that they they bought on auction. It was built in 1986 right. and, and at the earliest days of surface mount. Their DFM requirements will be far more stringent than yours, Correct. and yours might be less stringent than, or more stringent than, than someone with, you know, the unlimited budgets, right? So exactly, it, it really is, you're right, it's really relative to who's building it and, and what right. resources do they have. You talked about it. And, and, and we do actually have uh, one of our selective wave machines, which was our first one that we purchased uh, about 12 or 13 years ago. We still have it. And it's great for some of our uh, boards that we manufacture for a customer that's in the oil and gas industry, and their designs are from the late 90s, sure. uh, early 2000s. And so that product um, works great on that machine because of its older architecture. And uh, so in some cases, uh, DFM for that type of a product works better for a legacy machine. Sure. <laughs> so well, yeah, when you're, you, you when have you're, it from all perspectives. When your equipment matches the uh, timestamp of the product you're building, that's, e exactly. that's perfect, right? <laughs> um, yeah. You have an impressive amount of tools in your collection uh, at Pride for DFM. Is that a typical um, toolbox with most EMS providers or are you guys known to have, 
you know, more DFM tools in your toolbox than a typical um, contract manufacturer might. I, I think we probably have a broader set of tools simply because um, uh, something like uh, Valor, uh, which is a great tool for DFM analysis uh, all in itself, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not an inexpensive piece of software, although it's very good and very robust. Uh, a lot of larger CMs are, are probably putting the expense towards a software package like that and are a little bit more dependent on the software for making some of those decisions. Whereas the software that we're using um, is is maybe a lower cost um, or we're using it for multiple uh, purposes. And so the ju cost justification is a little cleaner. And um, because of that, uh, I have more people that are able to use the tools and people that are more in tune with the process on the floor can use those tools. Uh, with Valor, you're probably going to have somebody that's a, a high-level manufacturing engineer or a, does almost a design engineer that's heavily leveraging that tool to do the DFM analysis. Um, whereas in my case, most, most of my engineering and some engineering techs can utilize the software uh, to do DFM uh, activities. And so it, it really depends on the the scope and goal of, of how an EMS company wants to accomplish their DFM purpose. And for us, because of the broad set of tools and the wide range of skill sets needed to use them, uh, it works fantastic for us. So I can have somebody from an entry-level engineering technician to a senior engineer um, utilizing these different tools uh, to get a lot of DFM input at various levels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, excellent. I wasn't planning on asking you this question, but but it, it just kind of came up. Has you know we're in a world of big data now. You know, data collection <laughs> is cheap. Analyzing right. it is a whole specialty. Collecting it is right. not an issue anymore because memory's so cheap. And and I've talked to a few experts in recently on the subject of how to analyze big data, how to make that data useful, and things like that. Has the collection of data and and you know, every machine now collects data and it goes into some big portal and, and right. you pay a company a lot of money to, to make that data useful. Has that landed on DFM? Has, has, has the collection of, of you know, literally hundreds of thousands of data points from dozens and dozens of different types of equipment, has that benefited DFM? Has it made it down to that level? In some cases, definitely. Uh, so our SPI machines, uh, solder-based inspection, uh, being able to pull that data to see uh, if we're looking at a particular component that we're having solderability challenges or reflow challenges with, um, go, being able to go back and look at the print quality of that component over six months, uh, that really helps to see, hey, uh, does the trends in our defects match the trends in the SPI data? If so, then, okay, that's a printing issue. That's not a design issue or that's a stencil quality issue or whatever. Um, whereas if it's fairly steady across both of them um, or they, 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 there's like some mismatch, then you could say, okay, there's variability here that isn't coming from printing or reflow. There's something else going on. A good example is like the solder mask you mentioned. Um, so though that kind of data, when used in conjunction with everything else, it can definitely... Um, give you other factors to look at. And I think for us, in most cases, we use that data to kind of confirm our suspicions. So when we think, hey, we think there's something going on here, let's take a look at SPI data for this reason. If we get data that confirms our suspicions, we know that we're on the right track. Mm -hmm. um, if we look at data and say, wow, that thing prints exactly the way we expect 100% of the time, then we know, okay, maybe we need to shift gears and start looking at something else as being a root cause. Um, so definitely data um, and being able to analyze it for different reasons other than DPMO and yield uh, is definitely valuable in a DFM perspective. Let's talk about the intersection of a couple of DXs, DFXs. Yeah. <laughs> One of them is yours, DF. DF, um, uh, uh, M and the other uh -huh. is DFR reliability. How does, yeah. you know, you know I, I would assume the the primary motivation for DFM is to make something more efficient in, in the manufacturing part of it. It's, right. it's to make the manufacturing easier. Tell me how 
DFM morphs over into DFR, reliability. Oh, that's good. Uh, so I think the easiest way um, kind of goes back to what you mentioned earlier is if you have a cleaner manufacturing process that results in higher quality, the liability of that product and rework or uh, the chance of that product failing prematurely um, greatly improves. And so from a reliability standpoint, if DFM is second nature to you and you're really dialing the design and the process together, then um, warranty concepts start to reduce. Um, there's going to be a, a much smaller impact with quality issues that occur outside or after the factory, uh, I guess is the best way to look at it. Um, and obviously there's going to be less rework that's done in process which is, uh, of course, a definitive improvement that you want to have. Um, anytime you're introducing rework, that's unnecessary cost, which is an expense that the manufacturer has to deal with. Um, and then it also creates um, another risk factor about the quality of the product going out the door. Um, obviously, rework methods are, you know, pretty standard, uh, you know, nowadays. So, um, you know, performing rework on a component does not always reduce its lifespan or anything like that. But of course, doing less rework or less touch up or whatever it is, is always going to be the best case for product going out the door. Let's talk a little bit about rely a little bit more about reliability since I opened that door. Um, many companies, many people within those companies mix up the term quality and reliability. And yeah. one example that's kind of real time, I don't have an electric car, um, but the, the whole EV, public EV charging station fiasco that's going on right now. Right. Uh, statistics, <laughs> press reports state that the, the uptime statistic on these public charging stations, and I'm kind of excluding Tesla because they, they kind of have their own, right. uh, is, is about 70% uptime. That at any given time, 30% or so, uh, of public charging stations are broken. And right. you know that really is an inhibiting factor to the adoption of EV. If that's the direction our, our world is going, yep. that's a real impediment to it. You know, No one would buy a gasoline car if 30% of the gas stations were shut down at any, any exactly. given moment. So uh, it, you know, the, the CHIPS Act, which was signed by Congress in, uh, I don't know, uh, several months ago, is putting you know, billions of dollars into infrastructure, EV infrastructure, and and their requirement, their the strings attached to government money is <laughs> they have to. I, I believe the percentage, and I could be off by a point or two, but it's somewhere around ninety six percent. Has to have a ninety six percent uptime, which I think is pitifully low for electronics. Right. You know that that seems like, you know, if ninety six percent of airplanes, uh, if ninety six percent of air, <laughs> air flights were reliable. Uh, it would be a, no one would fly planes, right? Because there'd right. be several crashes a, an hour. Um, but at any rate, um, and I think that the manufacturers of these charging stations that are up 70% of the time, down 30% of the time, um, are not necessarily building bad product. The, the quality is probably there, meaning that they have right. a quality assurance standard. It meets that level of quality. I think where they got it wrong and kind of the, the genesis of this long question is um, they didn't understand the in-use climactic environment that those parts would be subjected to. They would be expect, uh, subjected to harsh environments, extreme cold, extreme heat, extreme moisture, extreme rodent um, you know, digestion <laughs> of wires, uh, roots coming up through the ground, uh, cars knocking into them, people abusing them, you know, things like that. Um, so. You know, they, they may have built it per a decent quality standard. They may have had a DFM program that was perfect, that allowed them to build it. Um, but I right. assume that DFM really only works if, if we can add the term reliable to it, like almost DFMR, right. like build, you know, designed for manufacturing reliable products, right? Uh, right. It's not just getting the product out the door. So um, 
so you know that's kind of one example of how that intersection of of reliability and manufacturability work because just manufacturing it is is one thing you know that gets you paid but that doesn't right. that doesn't necessarily make sure you get repeat business because all of a sudden you know particularly in in your world and I'm not saying your customers do this but typically in any relationship between a customer and a vendor, if something goes wrong, you end up getting you know this going on. You know, people exactly. pointing at each other. Um, so, how when you're building when you're doing a DFM analysis, is w how the part is going to be used, where it's going to be used, the environment it's going to be used, the reliability expectations, the cost of failure, or any of those reliability centric factors also factored into DFM? Yes. Uh, so there are some of the products that we build that their, their in-use environment um, does create some, uh, I don't want to say challenges, but um, factors that need to be uh, taken into account. Um, it's really where you have a customer um, call out IPC 610 class two for their product but because of the environment it's actually going to end up in or could potentially end up in, um, it really should be treated as class three um, or they should maybe have some additional um, call outs uh, for the type of uh, build parameters or assembly steps or inspection criteria. There should be additional uh, content in the requirements um, to ensure uh, the robustness of that product. Uh, a, a good example is something like a BNC connector. Um, when you're dealing with BNC connectors on very thick boards, um, getting uh, the four mounting posts to solder real well can be a challenge depending on the amount of copper planes inside that board. Um, in some cases, you may have uh, a customer that allows, uh, you know, IPC has a 50% solder fill requirement uh, for something like that. But depending on the usage of that product and because of the design challenges, you may have a customer that's willing to accept a 40% or 30% uh, solder fill because they want to reduce the thermal impacts on that board in process so that they don't you know, create a reliability issue by having perfectly soldered BNCs. But now you have a thermally stressed fab um, that may last two years instead of five years. Um, so those are concepts that you have to kind of consider what is this board going to see in its life once it leaves the building. Um, and a good, another good example of that is as uh, simple as uh, humidity. Um, you know, it, yes, the product's going into an enclosure, but is it going outside? Is it going to be experiencing uh, changes in weather? Uh, it might be great for a product in Northern California, but if you ship it to Southern Florida, um, that product's going to have some challenges. Um, so d depending on those types of environmental characteristics, um, the build process and changing it, uh, can directly, uh, improve the reliability of that product without actually changing the design. It's you're really just changing the manufacturing process used for it. Yeah, you bring up a really good point, Andrew, and that is uh, there's, with the explosion of IoT, Internet of Things, there's a lot of consumer-grade products, arguably class one, maybe if you're lucky class two, but arguably <laughs> class one, that are going out into the harsh, cruel world. You know, the wearables yep. and, and things like that. You know, they go with humans and we go to scary places. And you're right, I, I think that there's a lot of class one devices, class one by definition, it can fail and nobody dies, right? That's right. Or, or there's really not a lot of damage other than maybe the company's reputation. Uh, but they're not surviving. They're they're failing miserably because they're built right. to class one standards, and class one standards really didn't incorporate harsh environments and you know potting or conformal coating or whatever whatever is added to that. Um, it's probably not a solderability issue. You know, the solderability requirements on class three are yeah. different than than class two and different than class one. It, but there almost needs to be a, a couple of guests on my show a while back, Phil Zaro and Jim Hall from ITM yeah. Consulting, 
uh, said, you know, we really need a class one and a half and a two and a half, you know, to, yeah. <laughs> to, to, to mid-grade. And, and I'm almost thinking that we need almost like a class H, you know, harsh environment. Yeah. And that harsh environment yeah. could be thermal, moisture, shock, things like that. And again, class three, we think of military and medical and maybe high rail telecommunications, things like that. Um, but we don't necessarily need all the requirements of class three right. on a IOT device, right? Um, but we need some of it. So I, I think with the explosion of IOT and, and, and the proliferation of electronics everywhere, um, it, it might be time for IPC or some, some body to um, maybe relook at how we classify these things. And I think we need well, well over three categories than we yeah. currently have right now. And we actually have a, a, a customer um, that most of their products are class two, uh, but we actually call it kind of class two P, uh, which is yeah. preferred. Yes. Um, so they're asking for class two, but they really only want to see preferred criteria in any of their products. So they're, you know, we, we kind of treat them as a class three customer just to make it simple. Yeah. But uh, they, they call out class two, but anything that's not, all the way at the preferred level um, in that acceptable or process, you know, uh, process indicator areas, those types of items. Um, you know, they don't really want to see anything uh, other than uh, true preferred um, or above. So we actually um, treat that customer as class three. So then there's no um, issues or concerns and everything. And so we work with them on that as a relationship, uh, you know, moving forward um, so that it's very clear between both parties um, you know, how things are being called out versus what the true expectation is. Sure. So that, that, that's definitely a, um, a good way to look at it. IOT products are a good example, especially when you look at, um, in the hobbyist world or DIY world, um, there are so many electronics, you know, small microcontrollers and IOT wireless type devices that you can buy from Amazon, you know, very cheap. Um, but you, they might only last 12 months because they're not meant to be, uh, you know, treated as a wearable um, because, you know, it, it may work fantastic, but with a lot of vibrations and right. shock, uh, you know, as a wearable, um, the solder joints could, you know, uh, see much greater amounts of stress than um, the quality levels used to manufacture the product. Yeah. Take a Raspberry Pi microcontroller or something and <laughs> throw it into a harsh environment. And that's not really the ideal scenario that the designers of that right. product were, were considering. I, I would assume. I'm just. I'm just. That's yep. just a general assumption. We're almost out of time, so let's let's end with a couple more questions. Can you give me, without you know throwing any customers under the bus, um, yeah. you know, protect the guilty, uh, protect the guilty or, or or innocent, whatever applies. Can you provide like a, a real anecdote, perhaps that where your company stepped up and said, hey, we can do this better, and and the customer experienced some kind of you know, windfall from that. Right. Um, yeah, actually I have, I have one that's a pretty good example and it's pretty straightforward, uh, because it involves, uh, panelization. Uh, and so I use it as an example quite frequently. Um, so the, uh, the customer is consigned. So they actually purchase the fabs and all the raw materials supply it to us and we build the product. So their fab house was given the, uh, ability to make the panel layout. Um, based upon a, uh, an expectation of I need this fab to be the lowest cost. And so the, fa the panel was done as a six-up um, array, and it wasn't the best for manufacturing. And so while we could do the whole panel in SMT, we actually had to depanel it partially uh, in half to one by three arrays to be able to produce it on slide line because of some overhanging connectors. Um, and then we would finish the depaneling prior to the hand soldering and testing uh, functions. Uh, so my team actually came up with a panel layout that would be ideal for the entire process. Um, and I think it was a uh, uh, either a two by two or um, a two by uh, three uh, panel, um, uh, or not two by three, uh, two by one uh, that uh, had rails, etc., for conveyance, etc. So very clean from a process end to end. Uh, so we gave that to the customer, asked them to review it. They had it requoted by the fab house. Uh, the price was going to go up, um, you know, something like 80 cents for 
um, I think something like a $2 fab. So that was like a big increase for them. So they were like, okay, no, we're not doing that. So what we did is we actually reevaluated and quoted that assembly as if it was penalized in the ideal format, presented them a cost that was actually about almost $2 cheaper than the original cost. Um, and this is a high volume product, mind you. So it's a, you know, um, you know, 500 to a thousand a month, uh, and everything. So it was a noticeable difference for the customer. And it was on a product that very, very tight, uh, cost margins for them on this product. Uh, so obviously when they're like, okay, wait, so we spend a little bit more on the fab and you're going to double, uh, more than double that, <laughs> you know, in savings. Um, so of course they, uh, went ahead with that. Uh, change and so we're we now we're able to have a much cleaner process for that and one of the things that came out of that is they started going back through some of their other designs um, and going hey uh, what about this particular board we'd love to have a lower cost on it can you guys change the layout for us and will we get a lower cost and so it it, it started further discussion on other DFM topics because we were able to uh, make a noticeable difference from a cost perspective. So that one, uh, I guess another DFM topic is rather than focusing on individual components and lowest cost, what is your lowest total cost? So in this case, their fab price went up, but their total cost went down well more than more than what the fab cost went up. Mm. So from a design perspective or a buyer perspective as at the customer, that's not going to be seen to them. Uh, you know, why would they want to make something cost more? Um, well, because manufacturing is going to cost less. So that's where you dovetail those two together. Um, so that, that occurred a few years ago. And, um, with that particular customer, we have a much stronger relationship from a DFM and early design involvement. Um, so they're more recent designs. We've been involved very, very early on. Um, and so we've been able to prevent some other design challenges that would have created unnecessary costs. And finally, we're almost done. Last yep. question. Um, and and I, I, am, I am known, I do have a reputation for asking several last questions, but I do, I do think <laughs> this is my last question. Uh, what are the future, uh, from your perspective, what are the future trends in DFM in terms of technology and in terms of adoption? So from a uh, future trend as, hey, what do we need to be looking at? Um, uh, thanks to uh, um, COVID, uh, supply chain became a, um, you know, family kitchen term. Uh, it's sure. not just in certain industries, it's everywhere now. Um, so part availability, uh, and part obsolescence and those types of the items have, they have become a much stronger DFM topic. Uh, used to be, uh, you could design, uh, you know, a standard set of components into your board and you're rock solid. Uh, now, um, you may present that to your EMS provider and they go, yeah, your bomb looks great, but 20% of the parts are um, obsolete in the next month or we can't buy them for 52 weeks. Right. Um, so that's becoming a much stronger topic, um, you know, in, in the field uh, from um, DFM. Uh, and I think even going further into the future, other topics that we're starting to see um, is sustainability um, eco-friendly, uh, type topics, um, removing certain types of chemicals, uh, in the, you know, manufacturing, uh, process, uh, maybe reducing the amount of hardware, uh, that's in a design, um, to make it, uh, user-friendly from the end point, as well as reduction in waste going to the landfill. And, you know, so many years after the product is used, um, or, you know, environmentally friendly plastics. Um, there's a lot of different types of advances in plastics now. Um, that uh, can be used or leveraged um, for that. Um, and then I think that one of the other ones that uh, we're seeing a little bit, I, I see it more as still a ways out there, but it's a, a design and a product with um, salvage uh, concepts in mind so that you, you, you know have very expensive components that you may want to remove from a product uh, you know, so long after that product's been built. Um, so you design that, uh, that, that board in a way that those components can be extracted or removed in a recycling process. 
Um, so it may not get used for the same type of architecture, but maybe, um, you know, into other countries uh, where they can leverage uh, very expensive parts uh, in, you know, refurbished type environments or whatever. Um, we, I have seen a few topics with a couple customers that that was one of their, their topics, um, especially dealing with very expensive uh, processors um, or custom modules like GPS or something of that nature. Excellent. Well, uh, we are out of time. Andrew Williams, Pride Industries, thank you so much for sharing your insight on DFM and other DFXs uh, <laughs> with me and my audience. I really appreciate your knowledge and your willingness to share that knowledge. Oh, you're very welcome. I love to share um, what we do, what our expertise is, and um, how we do it uh, while meeting our mission uh, so that we're um, improving society as we do what we do. Excellent. And for those of you who are listening to this uh, podcast uh, on your favorite podcast app, go to the show notes on your favorite podcast app, and you'll have information on Pride Industries and contact information there. Also, if you're watching this on the uh, YouTube channel, right down here somewhere that says show more, click the show more button, and we'll have contact information uh, there as well. So uh, again, Andrew, thank you so much for your, uh, for generously donating uh, all that experience uh, to me and my, my uh, audience. I really appreciate you being here. Yeah, you're very welcome. I'm happy to do it. Well, that's another episode. Thanks for listening to or watching the Reliability Matters podcast. Our episodes have been downloaded more than 35,000 times, and I remain ever grateful for your support and encouragement. Don't miss an episode. Listen and subscribe to the Reliability Matters podcast on your favorite podcast app or watch it on the Reliability Matters YouTube channel. If you're watching this on YouTube, be sure to click the like, subscribe, and bell icons to be notified when new episodes are released. We release new episodes on the second and fourth Tuesday of every month. A special thanks to Circuit Assembly Magazine's PCB Chat at pcbchat.com and Ascendo Reliability at reliability.fm for syndicating the show. Thanks also for your questions and episode suggestions. Please keep them coming. I love to hear from you. Send comments and episode suggestions to mike at mikeconrad.com. Just remember, that's Conrad with a K. Once again, thanks for listening or watching. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, stay happy, and perhaps most importantly, keep doing it right. And I'll see you again in two weeks. Thanks for listening to the Reliability Matters podcast. Join us on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for new episodes of Reliability Matters.